Welcome everybody this morning and happy Labor Day weekend to you. Uh, We this morning are looking at the life of David and this morning we come to the end of part one of the series, sort of the end of season one, so to speak. Uh, We'll be pushing the pause button on this as we do a few other things this fall, but have no worries. We'll come back near the end of the year and do season two. How about that? All right. So our scripture reading this morning, the passage on which the teaching is based, is from 1 Samuel chapter 18 and a bit of 19. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? That's God's word this morning. And in this story today, we see something as important as faith, as spiritual as fasting, and that is friendship. Friendship. This story today we see is, one, is the first of one of the two most dangerous periods in David's life. There's one right now, this story, then there's one later. And the first one, this one, where he comes through as gold, where he comes through the better for having gone through the trial. He has a friend. The later, other in his life, after he becomes king, David fails and falls through lack of friendship. Friendship, in other words, in this story, didn't just save David's life. Friendship saved his soul. Saved his soul. And it can be the same. It should be the same for you and me and us today. So let's take a look at the life-saving and the life-changing power of friendship through, of all things, 
the three reactions to David's famous victory over Goliath. Now, we saw last week how David had conquered Goliath and saved his people. And so this morning, we're going to look at the aftermath of the battle. What happened next? And as we see the three distinct reactions to David's victory, we'll see how two of them mistakenly crush our relationships and our friendships. And the one way it shows us how we can have better friendships than we could even have dared hope for. Let's look at this morning, these three reactions. First, the crowd's song, then Saul's spear, and finally, Jonathan's sword. We'll begin here, number one, looking at the crowd's song. And again, there's three reactions here recorded to David's victory over Goliath. And the first one here, of course, is there's something very, very curious going on here. It's the song of the crowd. What did they sing? Let's read it. It said when they were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out, right, to meet King Saul. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David is tens of thousands. Now, this sounds fair enough, you know, sort of like the victory chant here, except if you'll notice, the crowd gets the song all wrong. It gets the song all wrong. You say, how is that? Well, first of all, what they sing is actually, factually incorrect, right? David's only killed one soldier, Goliath. Saul's the one who's actually and literally killed the thousands. And I don't mean to take anything away from David. This isn't meant to diminish his accomplishment. But David's only killed one Philistine. You say, well, you know, Morgan, isn't this Hebrew poetry? You know, isn't the second stanza of Hebrew poetry supposed to amplify the first? Yes, you would be correct if you thought that. The second line in a Hebrew poetic couplet is supposed to amplify the first. Sort of like when the psalmist says, you know, the chariots of God are thousands upon tens of thousands. And so, yeah, they got the poetry part right. But they're getting the facts wrong. How can one be blown up into 10,000 or more? And we find the answer to that by asking another question. What was the whole point of the David and Goliath story? Hmm? What, do you, what, do you, what do you think the point of the battle was? What was it showing you? Was it this? Was it, hey, you know, the old guys can't cut it anymore, right? It's out with the old, in with the new. We're starting the youth movement. Was that it? Was it... Snipers are better than infantry when it comes to desert warfare. Is that it? What was it really all about? And of all people, Jonathan shows us what the battle was all about in chapter 19. Here's what Jonathan saw. The people sang about David. But look what Jonathan is singing here in a sense. When he says to Saul, his father, he says, The Lord won a great victory for all Israel. Can you see the difference? Right? See, the battle wasn't about David. The battle was about God. The crowd got the what wrong because they got the who wrong. Right? They missed the whole point. Why? Because of their desperation. They're desperate for a new leader, a new king after Saul's failures. They're propping David up as their savior after just one battle. And in doing so, they do what all people do when they prop up another person as their savior. They reduce that person. They distort that person. They flatten that person out. And in David's case, it was to a single word, the word warrior, right? David has slain, he's killed, he's the warrior. David the warrior. See, he's not a person anymore. He's a poster. 
It's a poster. And whenever someone is reduced through hero worship, it's only a matter of time before they let you down and only a matter of time before you or the crowd starts singing a different tune. And later in his life, the people did. They changed the song they were singing about David. You see, later in David's life, after he's failed his nation, he is serenaded again as he rides on another road. But this time, it's not by praises. It's by curses and insults. In the course of his lifetime, in other words, he was cast away by those who once sang his praises. See, the crowd tore his poster down. What do you call a relationship where when the going's good, you stay in it, but when you're dissatisfied with what you're receiving, you break it off? Now, I'm not talking about fundamentally abusive or destructive or dangerous relationships, which of course do exist, but they are far less than the vast majority of relationships in all our lives. See, I'm talking about the other 99% plus. What do you call that kind of relationship where you sing its praises when it's good, but you dump it when it's bad? And the answer to that is not only what we see in the crowd in their day, but it's what we see in our culture in abundance today. And that is a consumer relationship. Consumer relationship. Consumer relationships, of course, have always existed. And to a certain extent, they're good. I mean, they're good in a certain way. Because if your internet doesn't work well, And you're being charged three times the market rate. What ought you to do? You ought to switch. Man, you're being a good American, right? I mean, this is healthy for the economy. It provides better goods and services. People don't get taken advantage of and so forth. It helps over the long haul of our nation's life and economy again. Again, consumer relationships, they've always existed. But sociologists, now our cultural anthropologists are telling us over and over that we, especially in the U.S., are the first culture in the history of the world to allow this consumer mentality to burst the banks of the marketplace and flood the previously sacred ground of our personal relationships as well. Now, now we evaluate all relationships, our family, our friends, our church, as user relationships, as what can they give to me? What can I get out of this? We look at them as things that can promote or save us. Mark Edmondson is a professor of English at the University of Virginia, and he wrote an article called Dwelling in Possibilities. And he's in his 60s now. uh, He said in the article, it's a fascinating one, that he said in all his years, he's never seen a generation of students like this one, one that is addicted to not committing. Now, he's got a sense of humor about it, as you'll see. He's not just a grumpy old man sort of taking it out on the new kids, right? But he does humorously point out three ways in which our culture in general struggles because of our commitment-phobic nature. He says this. This is from the article. He said, quote, ask an American college student what he's doing on Friday night. Ask him at 5.30 afternoon. I don't know will likely be the first response. But then will come a list of possibilities to make the average Chinese menu look short. The concert, the play, the movie, the party, the stay-at-home, chilling or chillaxing, the monitoring of Sports Center, the reading, fast, fast, of an assignment or two. Then he says, go to a party. He said, at a student party, about a fourth of the people have their cell phones locked to their ears. What are they doing? 
They're talking to their friends. About what? About another party they might conceivably go to. And naturally, the simulation party is better than the one that they're at now and not at. Though, of course, there will be people at that party on their cell phones, spiraling on into M.C. Escher infinity. Another story he gave, example he gave, was of a student who came to him, and the, and the student said, Professor, you know, you've assigned me to read to some philosopher, Thoreau or Freud or somebody, and he said, hey, you've got 10 minutes to convince me why I should spend my time reading this book you assigned me. You've got 10 minutes, prove to me why it's worth my time, ready, go. Dr. Evanson said, listen, you're going to have to take the book and read the book, it's going to take you a long time just to read that one book. And the student said, well, hey, don't you know how many other things I could be doing during the time it's going to take me to read the one book? To which Dr. Emerson replied, the point of reading any great book or literature or any great writer, the point isn't to get smarter or to sound more articulate or sound more well-educated. The point isn't to use them, right, just to make yourself look better. But the point of any great book is to see if the writer knows you better than you know yourself. Which he said, that takes a long time to learn. And he says, if you can't do this, if you won't do this, your life is just going to be like the average internet user's surfing habits, right? You're just going to surf from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. And you'll never grow. Never grow. And finally, he looked at consumerism in the area of our emotions. He said this, he said, I was trying to find out what exactly does it mean to hook up? (laughs) It means managing to have good sex without activating all the strong feelings that sex usually brings. Hooking up is a fantasy of frictionless sex, sex free of deep emotion. It's sex that lets you keep on sliding over surfaces, moving from partner to partner as smoothly as you move from sight to sight on your laptop. He said of this generation, he says, they live to multiply possibilities. They're enemies of closure. (laughs) For as much as they want to do and actually manage to do, they always strive to keep their options open, never to shut down possibilities before they have to. Interesting. You know, of course, you know what he's saying, right? He's saying not just them. He applies it to, to our culture in general. He says, we're becoming a nation of possibility junkies. We're addicted to options. Options are our opiate. And this is why so many of us are so lonely. That's why we're so lonely. See, because users, consumers, possibility junkies can never have true friends. They can't. See, the crowd here, they just use David because they're desperate for a new king option. Saul's failed them, his courage is going, his kingdom's cracking. And on one hand, it's understandable. But in this case, what's their desperation done to them? It's made them a user of David, right? They've reduced him. He's a symbol or he's nothing. And if you, if you move into relationships, into friendships, desperate, needy, only looking for a savior figure, for someone to help you and fix you and fill that big hole in your heart, here's what you'll do. You'll treat that person like the crowd treated David. At first, it's great. But then, when you find out that person's imperfections, failings, maybe they don't call you back, maybe they actually do something not good, right? You'll reject them and cast them to the side and resent them in the end. Why? Because you weren't going into the relationship to serve or give. You were only coming to use. 
And when it comes to having friendships, making great friendships, if you only say, what's the benefit to me? What am I going to get out of it? What's it going to cost me? You'll never have friends. Never have friends. And in the same way, when it comes to being a part of a local church, if you're endlessly non-committal, see, won't give, won't serve, won't participate, if you're only part of the crowd and ask, what can they do for me? You'll never have great relationships. Never have great friendships. Because you know what? Having true friends will cost you. Having true friends, real friends, lifetime friends, it will impoverish you. It just will. Sometimes they won't make you better. They'll make you worse. See, friendship isn't a cost-benefit analysis. You can put on a spreadsheet and look at, at the end of the year, how much have I gotten out of this? I'm looking at moving on. Perhaps my financial advisor can give me some insight, you know. If it doesn't cost you to stay in the relationship at some point, that person's not your friend. They're your vendor, you're a vendor. And when you don't like what comes out of the machine, you just move on to the next. So you're not a, a friend. You were just a fan. A fan. Fans come and go. Friends remain. But Jonathan wasn't like the crowd, was he? Wasn't a user. Wasn't a consumer. He was a friend. How so? It tells us. And Jonathan made a covenant with David. Because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing. Gave it to David. Now, we'll get into what that means a little later, but here's the point. Here's what it's showing us. Users can't make friends. Consumers can't make friends. But givers can. Givers make friends. Givers make and keep friends. Giving before you get anything out of the relationship. Giving when it makes no sense and isn't deserved. That's what makes and keeps a friend. As C.S. Lewis said about friendship, those who have nothing to share can share nothing. So, first, the crowd's song shows us that users can never make and keep true friendships. But let's move on now. Some of you are saying thank you finally. Uh, let's look at the second thing the passage shows us that can crush our friendships. And that's what we see inside, number two, Saul's spear. Inside Saul's spear. So, let's ask, how does the king of Israel respond to David's success? Well, he doesn't sing a song for David or give a robe to David, but instead he hurls a spear at David. Verse 10, he had a spear in his hand. He hurled it saying, I'll pin him to the wall. Why? Why did he say this? Well, let's look at his reaction to the crowd's reaction. As they danced, they sang, right? Saul has slain his thousands. David is tens of thousands. Verse 8, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. Literally in the Hebrew, it says he was evil in his eyes. It says, they have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And what this is showing us here is the second thing that ruins friendships. It's envy. Simply envy, having a heart of envy. What is envy? Well, we get no clearer picture of it right here than in Saul's own thoughts, which give us a brilliant two-word definition of envy when he says, but me, but me. Envy is a but me. He's saying they've credited David with this, but what 
about me. See, but me. Oh, that's the heart of envy. When, in other words, you can't rejoice in the success of another, when you can't cheer the accomplishments of another, someone either close to you, maybe not, when you can no longer say, hey, good for them, and let the good for them stand without anything else on the end of it, that's envy. If you can't say, my friend, my best friend is getting married. All my friends are getting married and good for them. And you can't leave it at that without adding a, but me. That's envy. If you can't say, my coworker got that promotion or you know, she just got that raise or isn't her house nice or he got that car or they just got to take that great trip and you can't just say, good for them and not add a, but what about me? on the end. That's the dark heart of envy shooting its tendrils out into your life. And let's just acknowledge that not only is it very real, but envy is very painful. It's painful. Look at this quote. This is from Joseph Epstein. He's an essayist and writer, wrote a book called Envy in his Seven Deadly Sins series. And he said this. He's very, very insightful. He said, quote, most human vices have the sense to be very, very tempting. I love that. Lust, gluttony, sloth, hurling powerful, if unimaginative, expletives at a member of the political opposition, buying a pair of Thierry Robinson snakeskin shoes at 25% off, even though you just bought a pair of cherry red slingbacks last week, all these things feel very good to indulge in, which is why people must be repeatedly adjured not to. One vice, however, dispenses with any hedonistic trappings and feels so painful you would think it was a virtue, except there is no lean muscle mass at the end. It's envy. And he's right. Envy doesn't make sense. Envy doesn't help us in any way. It doesn't make you feel good in any way. It's only painful, and yet it's a part of the human experience and can grow to dominate your life and ruin your relationships. It really is a deadly sin. And I might add, especially if you are a successful person in here, you've made it in the world's eyes to a certain extent, or you've married someone who has, you are especially at risk for envy. After all, who's envying David? Hmm? It's not the women in the streets who are a picture of the poor and the powerless, but it's Saul. It's the elite. It's the ruling class, the middle and upper class leader here. You say, well, okay, man, maybe so, but so what? It's no big deal, right? I mean, what's the harm in a little bit of envy? Everybody does it. No, no, no. You're not getting the picture. See, because envy starts as a small cut in Saul's heart, but because it's left unchecked, it grows into a raging infection that consumes his life. Here, he covertly tries to kill David, right? He roots for his downfall. He sends him on suicide missions. But David survived these. Then Saul decides, well, if you want something done right, you're just going to have to do it yourself. And he tries to kill him with the spear. And then when David eludes him twice, it gets worse. Saul's envy after this became the driving force of his life for the rest of his life. He spends his time, his energy, his focus, his government and nation's money funding military campaigns to eliminate and kill David to get that elusive feeling of satisfaction. And because his envy goes unchecked, because his focus was on eliminating David and not on guarding and defending his nation, over the course of the next 20 years, the Philistine army grows back with a vengeance, attacks an even stronger force when it's least expected, 
and it costs all his life. In other words, envy starts, it begins with a thought in your heart, and it ends with a sword through your chest. That's the power of envy. Why is this? Two things. Why is envy so powerful? Two things. First, envy blinds us to its effects. Just blinds us. Uh, There's a website I found on the internet about envy. Uh, On the website, it encourages young women to write in and describe which model or actress or starlet or whoever they most envied and why. And there are just hundreds of posts written on this by all these young women, teenage adult women, naming the, the woman they most envy, you know, Selena Gomez, Jennifer Lawrence, etc. But there was a curious statement at the bottom of the site. It said, basically, there have been lots of links to my site from pro-anorexia sites. And I don't approve of that at all. Why is this happening? I don't understand it. But my question is, why was she surprised at all? Why was she surprised? Because you can't nurture envy on one hand and not expect it to blossom into devastating effects. In other words, you can't suffer an envy cut and not expect it to get infected without some kind of intervention. And that's what envy does. We can't see it growing from a, what about me? They're not singing about me, right? They're not talking enough about me. They're not noticing me enough. They're not having me do that to the next step which is questioning another person's heart and motives. That's what Saul does. David, he wants the kingdom. He's power hungry. We begin to assassinate character. To the third step, now we root against them. Don't support them. To the fourth step, now we begin to attack the person personally. To the fifth step, now we gather others around us to do the same. We can't see envy growing. Second reason it's so powerful is because envy not just blinds us to what affects, but envy binds us to itself. This is a sort of a strange part of the passage. We can't pass it by. It said, the next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing as he usually did. Now you've got to ask, of course, what does this mean here? Well, the word evil here literally means malignant or something that grows more of what it is, like a tumor, almost like a, a tumorous spirit, a malignant spirit of envy. You say, well, that's strange. Why would a spirit of envy come from God? But notice what it says. It says, the next day. The next day. Why is that important? Well, this is the day after Saul chose Saul chose to let his own heart go dark. And what this text is showing us is what most of the world has always believed and believes of this day, which is that there is both evil within us, but there is also supernatural evil in the world that can come on us and lock us in to behaviors and patterns from which we become powerless to break ourselves free. In other words, in the beginning, you do envy But in the end, envy does you. And the more he gave into envy, the more it became him. Saul here puts himself in touch with evil. And because God, oh, he honored Saul's free will. And he will honor yours as well. Honor yours as well. He allowed him and he'll allow you to keep going down the endless rabbit hole of it. If that's what you want. You see how you see how destructive envy is and how dangerous envious people can become. Wanting what someone else has. Friendship, marriage, money, house, etc. In Saul's case, a nation. It can drive it all into the ground. So the question is, if both consumerism and envy kill and ruin our relationships and friendships, what can sustain them 
and cause them to flourish. Oh, it's what we see in number three here. It's beautiful. It's what we see in, finally, Jonathan's sword. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and he gave it to David along with his tunic, even his sword, bow, and belt. Now, why would he do this? Why would Jonathan do this? Well, it's not, first of all, because some have suggested, as some have suggested, that David and Jonathan were in a kind of homosexual relationship. That only comes, hear this, from the deepest and worst kind of sexist stereotype, which is namely that men can't have friendships and relationships with emotional depth. See, after all, if the Bible were to depict two women weeping over each other, expressing forever friendship, giving gifts like Naomi and Ruth, right? You think, oh, okay, great, it's women, right? But when it's two men, you think, well, that sounds kind of strange, which only reveals a deep gender bias. After all, how Jonathan and David behave here is no different than how the New Testament instructs all Christians to treat everybody, to treat one another. But many don't. Many don't. And of course, many in David's day didn't, which is why this stands out as remarkable. And it is remarkable. It's amazing. Jonathan gives away his sword, which is a way of saying, I'm going to lower my defenses before you. I'm not going to keep you out. He's saying, David, I trust you as my friend, even to harm me if you see fit. Let me ask you, have you done this in your friendships? Hmm? Do you have people... You have deputized with a prepaid lifetime hunting license in your life. People who can at any moment go after what they see. Do you have people you can say the proverb to? Oh, faithful are your wounds to me. Oh, my friend. You have someone like that? See, David had this kind of friendship. And it did more than save his life. Here it saves his soul. And if you have it, it'll save yours in your dark moment as well. But you've got to ask, how could Jonathan even have done this? Why did he do this? And the answer is, oh, there's more going on here than meets the eye. See, Jonathan could never have given his sword away, opened himself up, made himself vulnerable, given away the rest of his possessions if he had never given the very first thing the passage tells us that he gave David. Did you catch it? It says he gave his tunic which is more than a shirt no this word here in hebrew is the word for his royal garment it was the representation can you see of his position he's saying david i acknowledge that you are greater than i am you are more important than i am he's saying oh it's amazing i recognize david that god's plan of salvation is coming into the world through you and the only way for me to participate in it is to relinquish my rights and my life. It's stunning. You've, here we have a crown prince, someone who's years older than David, stooping down to give away his title, give away his position, his throne, to a poor younger man, not of the royal family. I mean, this happens exactly nowhere in our political world today, does it, right? I mean, could you imagine one of our current presidential candidates, let's just say Hillary Clinton, giving an interview in which she said, you know, I just had dinner with the Donald. And you know what? Donald Trump is who I'm going to vote for. You should vote for him. He's a better person than I am. Could you imagine that? Or vice versa. How about, could you imagine Donald Trump saying, you know what? You should vote for Hillary Clinton. I've had dinner with her. She's a better person than I am. Now you laugh. You know it would never happen 
And these are people we vote for, not rulers, princes with rights to thrones. You think, was David just that charismatic? Or was Jonathan maybe that weak or in awe of David's ability? No. It's just who Jonathan was. He was a man, not of commitment, not of contract. Oh, but covenant. Covenant. Because he isn't just faithful to David, but he's faithful to his father, Saul, all the way to the end of his life. He's got every right to abandon his father. His dad goes mad. He drives the nation into the ground. He tries to kill his best friend. Saul even tries to kill Jonathan, his own son. But Jonathan doesn't abandon his father to join David. No, he rescues David over and over, but he stands with his father even to his death. You think, how could he have done this? Oh, it's just who Jonathan was. Covenantal, faithful, loyal. It's just his character. His name means in Hebrew, God's giver. He's God's giver. Faithful. And as he does it, what happens to him? It's amazing. As he gives away his power, as he gives away his kingdom, as he's covenantal and faithful, Jonathan becomes more and more kingly. He becomes more and more beautiful. But as Saul tries to hold on to what he has, to what he's built, as Saul clutches his little kingdom more tightly, pressures him to choose one over the other, as Saul becomes more paranoid, oh, he becomes a ghost. He tries to hang on to power, doesn't he? And it ruins his family. But Jonathan was willing to serve David, though David had done nothing to deserve his friendship. See, in reality, David was a threat to Jonathan. It's a threat to him. Saul reminds him, Jonathan, if David lives, your kingdom will come to nothing. But Jonathan did it. He decreased so that David could increase. Oh, for more Jonathans in our lives. For more Jonathans in our lives. Friends who never give up on us, even under pressure. Friends who stick by us through ups and downs. And oh, that we would be Jonathans to one another, church. Those who don't quit on one another, even when it makes no sense. The question is, though, how can we be? How can we be this kind of friend? How can we have this kind of friend? Well, it's not just by looking at Jonathan, because if that's all you see here, it'll just crush you. Jonathan is this impossible standard of friendship, isn't he, to live up to? Because if the point of the story is, be just like Jonathan, then the moral of the story is either stick to your lunatic father even if it kills you or it's give away the farm to the shepherd boy neither of which may be possible for you and neither of which the Bible's trying to show us so what is it trying to show us this centuries later another crown prince would grow up in Israel another loyal son of covenant faithfulness to his father one day a greater and more noble Jonathan got off his throne and put his happiness into the happiness of another who did not deserve it. One day, this Jonathan, though he had every right not to, gave of his position, was stripped of his royal robes so that someone else could get the throne. But unlike Jonathan, God's great giver, Jesus Christ, didn't die just for a lunatic father, but for a wicked world. He didn't just give up his sword. No, he experienced the sword from the one he, the very one he had came to save. He took what was ours, our blow, so that we could get what was his. Status as God's beloved child, 
royalty, see? And because Jesus did it, his kingdom will never end. It'll endure. Consumers ask, what do I get out of this? But Jesus says, what can I give? Envy says, they don't deserve it. Isn't it terrible they got that? Jesus says, they don't deserve that. And isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful? Covenant friendships say, like Jonathan said to David, and like Jesus says to us, I'm going to love you no matter what. And here's the great irony, last thought. The more Jonathan made David the king, the more David became his friend. Did you catch that? The more Jonathan made David king in his life, the more David became his friend. And the more you can say to Jesus, oh, you are God's anointed. You are the Savior, the Messiah, the king in my life. The more he becomes your friend. The more his friendship power flows into you. And the better a friend you can be. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Let's do that now as we go to him. Father, we thank you for giving us your great giver, your Jonathan, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I'm praying today as we open our hearts to you, as we give you friendship, our hearts and lordship, you give us friendship in return. There's no other king like you. There's no other friend like you.